from the corner of 16th and Peachtree Street, right next to the High Museum of Art in Midtown Atlanta. Welcome to the First Presbyterian Church. I'm Senior Pastor Tony Sundermeyer, and I want to thank you for tuning in to today's broadcast. And I would invite you now to join us in the worship of God. Please turn with me in your pew Bible to Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10, which can be found on page 602 in the Old Testament. Listen for and hear the word of God. A shoot shall come out from the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hands on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nations shall inquire him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Friends, our second scripture reading comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 15, verses 4 through 13. You can follow along in your pew Bibles on page 153 of the New Testament. Listen now for God's word. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, so that by steadfastness and by the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of steadfastness and encouragement grant you to live in harmony with one another, in accordance with Christ Jesus, so that together you may with one voice glorify the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Welcome one another, therefore, just as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the circumcised on behalf of the truth of God in order that he might confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore, I will confess you among the Gentiles and sing praises to your name. And again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him. 
And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse shall come. The one who rises to rule the Gentiles, in him the Gentiles shall hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, this too is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And let us pray. Lord, break open your word afresh to us in this hour so that we would be different people than those who came into this sacred space, even to be more like your Son, Jesus the Christ, who is our hope. Amen. Well, according to Greek mythology, Pandora was the first woman on earth. In some ways, she is the Hellenistic version of the biblical character Eve. The writer Hesiod tells us that she was clothed by Athena. She was made beautiful by Aphrodite, and she was given unbelievable musical ability by the god Apollo. Pandora was also given a jar. Now, many of us have been taught that she was actually given a box, but we can thank Erasmus of Rotterdam for a translation error, translating the Greek word jar into the word box. Nonetheless, this jar contained all sorts of evil and calamity. Fortunately, it was locked, and the key to open it was in the possession of Pandora's husband. Her curiosity, much like the curiosity described to us of Adam and Eve in the third chapter of the book of Genesis, as it related to the prohibition from God not to eat of the fruit from the tree, the knowledge of good and evil, even though the temptation of the serpent was piqued by, uh, or the curiosity was piqued rather by this temptation from the from the serpent and they ate of the fruit, Pandora has a similar moment. She needs to know what's in the jar. And so her husband falls asleep and she takes the key and opens it. And out of it came every evil, every malice, every wickedness, every calamity known to the human race. She quickly tried to to close it up But it was too late. Everything had been released. Well, almost everything. To use language from our own theological tradition, sin and evil entered the world when Pandora's jar was opened. Now, one of the interesting bits about this story that maybe we forget when we read this uh, myth in middle school or in high school was that almost everything escaped from this jar, almost everything. There was actually one item that Pandora was able to seal in, only one. One item that did not escape this jar of of wickedness, this jar of calamity, only one item, and that was the item of hope. Hope was shut in by Pandora. It did not escape. 
It begs the question, in a container full of evil, full of wickedness, what is hope doing there? Conventional wisdom says that hope is something that is positive. Hope is something that is good. Hope is something that moves us forward. So why is hope in this jar in the first place? Well, it was the late 19th century and early 20th century German philosopher, Friedrich Nietzsche, who really leaned into this idea that hope belonged in that jar. He thinks Hesiod is ahead of his time. He thinks he's on to something, writing even in 700 B.C., understanding the pejorative nature of this notion called hope. Nietzsche, in his book, Human, All Too Human, published in 1878, he talks about Pandora's box, and he says that hope is evil. It belongs in that jar because, to quote him, it prolongs human suffering. Hope just prolongs the inevitable Remember, Nietzsche is famous for three words in his philosophy, among many other things, but these three words in particular, God is dead. And if God is dead, there is no hell to be feared and no heaven to be gained. There is no future reality that is coming. All there is is this moment right in front of us, this moment that we are living. And this moment, says Nietzsche, requires a will to power. And when he implores people to engage this will to power, what he is saying is, in the absence of God, in the death of God, you and I need to become God. We need to be autonomous. We need to become master of our own life, master of the now, master of the moment that is here, fulfilling our own ambition and desire. You see, for Nietzsche, he observed hope as a folly, both in its sacred and secular forms. You see, Nietzsche was a, was a great student of history, and, and he could make the case based on the trajectory of the human race, at least in its Western, uh, its, its Western form, he could make the case that, that hope is evil because it prolongs suffering and it just disappoints time and time again. I mean, just take, for example, the Christians living in a secret faith in those first centuries of the church, hoping that what? Jesus would come back in their lifetime. They believed, they hoped that Jesus would return to put the world to rights, and it didn't happen. And then all of a sudden, Constantine becomes a Christian and he legalizes the faith. And the Christians living there say, certainly this is the manifestation of the kingdom of God. This is what we've been hoping for. I mean, after all, the empire is now holy. And yet that realized kingdom did not come, at least the way Jesus described it in the New Testament as the church sold out to economic and political power. And then, 
another group of people about 500 years ago called the Reformers had within their mind and their hearts a new hope, a hope that would, a hope that would move them to a purity in the church, to a liberation of the people by the power of the gospel, to reform the ways in, in which the church had given in to the political and economic powers of the day. And we have this great reformation, and among all of its good, including produce, producing churches like ours, it looked in a lot of ways just like the Roman church, still giving in to the temptations of power and prestige. Then after those reformers came people who were enlightened, people who saw God not as one who was engaged in the world, this really is the true definition of the secular, that there is no transcendent force acting in or upon us, that God was like a divine uh, a clockmaker, a watchmaker, uh, sets the world in motion and then withdraws. And these enlightened people said, we, we no longer need to think about our future in terms of God delivering it. God is not concerned with the affairs of the world. We need to create this culture, this future with our hands, leveraging the gifts of reason and science and political ideologies that will make this world prosperous and good and peaceful and free. But then the, the French Revolution came and uprising in Europe and, and then World War I and World War II, and that future that the enlightened thinkers thought would come never came either. Nietzsche has all of this history within his purview and says time and time again, people get hung up on a future vision of what will be, and it never comes to fruition. Instead, we have to live right now in the moment the suffering and the anxiety and the pain and the loneliness are not going to be overcome by something far out there to be received or to be constructed. But instead, we have to overcome our suffering and our pain now without any hope in something outside of this moment. Now, to be sure, in the United States, Nietzsche's philosophy meets a formidable opponent because deep within our nation's bones is a sense of optimism. We have a sense of hope. It's part of our DNA. The people of the United States, as David Brooks once wrote, are prone to live in the future tense. We have become enchanted by the spell of paradise. We always say we want a life that is better for our children than the life that we have lived. We are constantly optimistic. We are constantly forward thinking. And you would think that Nietzsche's philosophy just wouldn't play in our culture of optimism. But in recent years, if we're honest, that optimism has been on shaky ground. We've seen the collapse of trust 
with the very institutions who, who talked about hope, who showed us what, what hope could be, who drew the map to a future that would be prosperous and good from the government to Christianity to the institutional church to Wall Street to the liberal towers of the academy to the labor force to the media to the breakdown of the family to the justice system to corporations we have been let down time and time again the bright future that was once promised by these institutions and these ideologies and these entities feels out of reach for many in our nation and so we're in this interesting moment in time where for many people hope feels like it's dying I know that comes off as a bit strong, but exhibit A in this argument, I believe, is our culture's consistent and constant pursuit of efficient pleasure. Call it what you want to call it, but self-interest, self-determination, self-protection, self-promotion, self-satisfaction, those are all just symptoms of a 21st century version of Nietzsche's will to power. There's no possible good beyond this moment. And because of that, there's no need to delay gratification. There is no need to anticipate, to wait. For all we have is the now. Satisfy your urges in the now. Satisfy your desires in the now. And because there is no need for that, virtue becomes an afterthought, virtue, for what point, for what purpose? There's no virtuous future to live into, so why be virtuous now? There's no need for ethics. Save the ethic that no one should impede another person's pursuit of pleasure. If it doesn't hurt anyone, it's okay. That is one of two moral standards many of us live by today. The other one being, if I don't get caught, it's not wrong. Everything is relative. There's no need for Christian discipleship. There's no need to take up your cross. There's no need to sacrifice as an act of love of God and love of neighbor. There's, there's no need uh, to live like Jesus or to follow Jesus or to hope in Jesus and his message of reconciliation and peace and righteousness and eternal life because he was wrong when he taught us to pray. There is no kingdom to come. Many of us consciously or unconsciously are actually living out Nietzsche's philosophy that hope is evil that hope belongs in Pandora's jar. We prove it to be so by living a self-centered life void of any future where God's vision can be received or can be lived into. For all we have is this moment. And in this moment, all we should do is seek pleasure. That is one way I believe we see hope dying. Just one way. There are two other ways that I want to lift up. I'm, I'm borrowing them from a 19, 
a 40s theologian named Joseph Piper, who said that hopelessness, theologically speaking, really takes on two forms. And, and this is where I, I think this uh, theology of hope really speaks to people of faith and where hopelessness begins to creep in for people like you and like me who, who deeply long for a connection with God and for a faith-filled life. First, hopelessness takes on the form of despair. It takes on the form of despair. Despair is when we anticipate that God will not be God in the future. That God will not act on God's promises. Despair is when we believe there is uh, no good future to come. There is no reality that will be marked as it is described in Isaiah by reconciliation, by peace, by righteousness. Despair is alive when hope in a God-delivered future is dead. But the second form of hopelessness for people of faith is, is more insidious. It, it, is, it is something that's more subtle because it can masquerade as genuine hope. It can masquerade as genuine hope for a person of faith. A, and it is the form of presumption. Piper says it's where we presume that God's future is all about me. Because when that happens... True hope dies. And replace it, we replace it rather with a, with, a, with a vision of what we want, a self-centered vision. But the God of hope, says the scriptures, has a particular future in mind. We see it through the words of Isaiah. We see it through the words of Paul. We see it lived for and died for and raised for in the person of Jesus Christ. Friends, I think hope is on life support. When we live by the standards of expedient pleasure or the will to power, I, I think hope dies in despair when we become convinced that God's vision for the future is not possible. Hope is crushed in the presumption that God's future is just about my personal fulfillment. I said in last week's sermon that Advent sometimes feels like it brings the, the wrong message at the wrong time. If you, you were here last week, the, the message was about staying awake. And I made a, a public confession by saying that I feel very tired in this time. Tired of many things, tired of many circumstances. We just come off of a, a busy fall schedule. We just come out of eating a lot of turkey on Thanksgiving and we're tired. We're tired and we just want to rest. And we have this image of God meeting us in this moment and of bringing to us rest. And yet we showed up last week and the first Sunday of Advent as we lit that first candle. And all we hear is, wake up. Stay awake. And it conflicts this, it conflicts this message that we want to receive, that we want to live, live into. It's to stay awake and keep watch and, and wait. And in the same way, this message of hope, I think, just meets a culture of hopelessness. It confronts us in our, our quest for expedient pleasure. It confronts us in, in our will to power. It confronts us in our despair. And it confronts us in our presupposition that God's future is all about me. And not about the vision that Isaiah has in bringing all people into a, a time of reconciliation and a time of peace and a time 
of righteousness. I, I, I've been with people this last couple of weeks. I was with a man uh, having breakfast with him just this past week, and he, and he looked me in the eye and he said, the, the thing I long for the most is to see my wife who has died once again in heaven. I, I, I was with a, a parent whose adult child is struggling with addiction, and, and they have a vision of the future where that, by God's grace, that child, that adult child becomes sober and lives into the gifts that God has given them. I, I have uh, talked with, with somebody, a young person, who is, who is feeling a sense of call to do something great for God in the world. And they have a vision of a world that, that could be good I was talking with someone this week about, about why they give so generously, why they pursue philanthropic work, because they believe in the stewardship of wealth and what God has allowed them to steward. And they have a vision of the way in which that wealth can work in the world for good. And yet we live in a world that wants to shadow all of these longings and all of these hopes with a Nietzschean philosophy that says hope is meaningless. But brothers and sisters in Christ, I say to you, hope is the way of God. Hope is God's future made known to us in our time, in our place. So friends, have hope, have hope for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of the world. Amen. Speak to one another. Speak to one another. Speak to one another. Speak to one another. Friends, abandon expedient pleasure, abandon living for the now, 
abandon the will to power, abandon despair, and abandon presumption, and have hope that the God who came 2,000 years ago will come again and usher into the kingdom that we have been living for and hoping for. And now may the peace of God, which goes beyond all understanding, guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. May this hope live with you this day and every day of your life. Amen.